Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from our panel of expert speakers. We'll have time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone requires assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Nicole, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Medical Update on Acute Myelogenous Leukemia, or AML. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other blood cancer and cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today that we have over 375 participants on the program today. And you come from all over the United States, so from different areas, from urban and rural and suburban areas. And we also happen to have today some international participants from India and the United Kingdom, so it's a bit of an international call as well. Um, today's program is supported by AGOs, Jazz Pharmaceuticals, Cell Gene Corporation, and Novartis Oncology. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. Now, we have wonderful speakers today on the program. And our first speaker is Dr. Farhad Ravandi. Dr. Ravandi is Janice and Stephen A. Lasher, Professor of Medicine, Chief, Section of Developmental Therapeutics, De Department of Leukemia, University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Ravandi is going to address an overview of acute myelogenous leukemia, or AML, treatment options, including the role of transplantation, and key questions to ask your healthcare team. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to, Dr. to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ravandi. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Mesner, and um, I appreciate this uh, uh, opportunity, and I'm uh, very glad to talk about uh, acute myeloleukemia, uh, which is uh, unfortunately a difficult disease to treat, uh, although there is now a lot of excitement uh, about uh, a lot of new developments in this disease that... Uh, uh, actually makes uh, some of us who have been doing this for a long time a lot happier than uh, we have been in the past. Uh, so as the term acute implies, there is uh, some degree of urgency in treating uh, patients with acute leukemias, including acute myeloid leukemia, as opposed to some of the uh, chronic leukemias that in some cases at least you can uh, watch and wait the patient uh, and see how they're doing. Uh, but in acute leukemia, uh, generally uh, the patient uh, needs to be worked up very quickly, and this usually involves a bone marrow exam, uh, which gives us uh, the information that we need to um, uh, initiate therapy. There is a a different type of acute leukemia, acute lymphoblastic leukemia that certainly is treated with uh, uh, different chemotherapy regimens, so that's a very important initial distinction. And there are also some other rare um, uh, acute leukemias that need to be um, um, uh, identified by the bone marrow. Uh, however, the other important piece that the bone marrow a uh, piece of information that bone marrow provides us is uh, what uh, we call cytogenetic and molecular information. And uh, uh, for over um, uh, 20 years, uh, we have, uh, 20 or 30 years actually, uh, we have really relied on this cytogenetics information in terms of uh, predicting 
outcome of patients uh, with a acute myeloid leukemia if they are just treated with uh, traditional chemotherapy. And this also has helped us determine whether a patient needs a, a what we call consolidation with an allogeneic stem cell transplant. Um, more recently, in the last uh, couple of decades, we have become aware of a number of molecular mutations. Uh, that's uh, mutations in genes in leukemia cells only, typically, uh, that have importance. Um, a number of these mutated genes have been shown to be important in predicting outcome, as in prognostic information. Uh, and more recently, a number of these genes have become targets of uh, uh, develop, uh, drug development. And you will hear from my uh, colleagues, Dr. Pearl and Dr. Stein, that there are now uh, very exciting uh, oral drugs that have been approved or on the way of approval that can actually be very useful in treating uh, acute leukemia, acute myeloid leukemia in various stages of uh, therapy. Uh, so the, uh, I move to the uh, part that uh, key questions to ask your healthcare team. I think it's actually now is very important uh, for oral acute myeloid leukemia patients to do uh, have um, uh, bone marrow, which we have done uh, always, but also to do uh, ask for. Uh, whether they're, uh, they're getting her, their cytogenetic and molecular information done at the initial bone marrow, um, because this uh, has some implications in therapy, uh, not only at the initial therapy, but also if the patient relapses and the leukemia comes back. Uh, so, as I mentioned, uh, we use this information as well as uh, other predictors to decide how the patient can, uh, uh, how the patient will do uh, with traditional chemotherapy. We have been treating acute myeloid leukemia with uh, a couple of uh, major drugs. One is called uh, cytarabine, and the other one, donorubicin, or its uh, sister drug, idorubicin. And this has been uh, our uh, backbone of therapy for uh, several decades now. And uh, using uh, these regimens, uh, we uh, can actually cure some patients uh, without needing uh, allogeneic stem cell transplant. And this is a group that we actually consider as more favorable uh, subtype of acute myeloid leukemia. Of course, the term favorable is actually, in my opinion, not a very good term because no acute leukemia is really, should be considered as being favorable. However, unfortunately, there are some subtypes that are considered as unfavorable uh, based on the cytogenetic information and more recently based on the molecular or gene mutation information. And also there is a group in the middle of the two which we call um, uh, uh, intermediate, uh, which as the term implies, has, have uh, an outcome which is intermediate between favorable and unfavorable. Clearly, the patients that we think are going to have an unfavorable outcome uh, with uh, just chemotherapy 
are definitely candidates for a potential allogeneic stem cell transplant when they achieve their first remission. And there is no debate about that among leukemia specialists. Uh, on patients who have a more favorable prognosis, uh, the majority of them uh, are uh, uh, given only chemotherapy uh, with the induction regimen followed by consolidation courses. Uh, because about 60 to 65 percent can be potentially cured with chemotherapy alone, and uh, these patients are not typically uh, referred for an allogeneic stem cell transplant. Uh, in the intermediate group, uh, it's been a bit more difficult uh, to determine who uh, will or will not need a transplant. Uh, uh, many centers uh, do actually consider transplant for most of their intermediate uh, risk patients, if there is a, a, a good donor, the, if the patient is uh, uh, a good candidate for transplant. Uh, so uh, uh, a significant proportion of uh, intermediate are considered for an allogeneic stem cell transplant. But as I mentioned, this is the reason why it's also important to consider the molecular testing uh, in your initial bone marrow because that provides us more information uh, in terms of prognosis and in terms of uh, uh, potential likely need for um, an allogeneic stem cell transplant when the patient achieves a remission. Um, and in fact, some of the uh, new uh, AML classifications in terms of prognosis take into account these uh, molecular uh, or gene mutation abnormalities that are found in the initial bone marrow. Uh, so it's actually very important to um, have uh, this uh, performed at the initial uh, encounter. Um, um, in terms of um, uh, therapy, as I mentioned, uh, uh, typically induction is with the chemotherapy that I mentioned. There is now new development that uh, Dr. Pearl will discuss as regards to uh, drugs called CYP3 inhibitors that uh, may be added to the initial induction regimen. And uh, or once the patient is in remission, unfortunately, uh, many patients think that that's it and they have done, but unfortunately, uh, consolidation cycles are needed. Um, and these will be uh, given uh, while the patient is in remission. As I, as I mentioned, in uh, a proportion of patients, an allogeneic stem cell transplant will be considered. And if the patient is fit and they have a donor, that would be a possibility uh, that uh, will happen. Now, there's also um, uh, one other uh, area that I'd like to touch upon before I run out of my time, and that is... Uh, uh, age and um, uh, the patients uh, above um, a certain age, uh, uh, you know, I'm not ages, but perhaps about 60, 65 years of age, uh, have traditionally done less well with uh, cytotoxic chemotherapy, especially if they had the more unfavorable um, uh, cytogenetic and molecular features. And uh, uh, particularly patients who have a lot of other medical problems and uh, perhaps have a poor uh, physical performance status, 
uh, they would not be uh, uh, great candidates uh, for receiving uh, traditional chemotherapy because that can be actually quite uh, potent and toxic. And because of this, there has been a trend uh, uh, internationally uh, and in the U.S. to use uh, what we now call hypomethylating agents as the backbone for treating older, infirm patients with AML. And these uh, there are two drugs. One is called uh, decidabine or dacogen, and the other one azacidabine or vedaza. And uh, these uh, agents are actually better tolerated, but uh, in terms of producing responses, they are uh, more limited uh, in terms of their ability to produce long-lasting responses. Uh, but the exciting thing, which uh, my colleagues will touch upon, is now uh, there are uh, oral uh, targeted agents that are being added to these drugs and uh, they have been shown to be very active in a number of areas. Uh, uh, drugs that will be mentioned are venetoclax, uh, SLIP3 tyrosine kinase inhibitors will be mentioned. Dr. Pearl will discuss quizartinib and uh, perhaps sorafenib and uh, um, giltritinib. And, and uh, uh, the one that is approved is um, mitostorin. And uh, also uh, IDH inhibitors, which will be touched by both Dr. Pearl and Dr. Stein, uh, inacidinib and ivocidinib uh, are drugs that could be of a lot of uh, potential in this area. Um, so uh, I think um, with that, uh, I also want to conclude that uh, the future of therapy in AML has been brighter than it has been in the past significantly brighter. Uh, leukemia physicians, AML physicians are all excited about these new developments. I haven't even touched about um, what we call uh, monoclonal antibodies, but I'm, I'm sure my colleagues will uh, discuss some of those. But uh, I think uh, the, um, uh, the arena of, uh, or the um, field of therapy for AML is uh, not only uh, expanding, but also getting better. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Randy. That was an outstanding um, kind of setting the stage for the program and an, an outstanding presentation, very comprehensive, and um, thank you so much. Um, um, and um, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Alexander Pearl. Dr. Pearl is Associate Professor of Medicine, Leukemia Program, Division of Hematology Oncology, Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. And Dr. Pearl will be addressing new therapies, symptom and pain management tips, and quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Pearl. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Um, so I'm going to focus in on the, the new therapies. And, and as Dr. Ravani mentioned before, there, there really is a lot of excitement in the AML field because for many years we had a limited number of drugs that were approved to treat AML, and then suddenly the FDA went and approved four new treatments in one year, which was really exciting for us because having, having treated patients for many years, it's nice to have new opportunities, and each of these drugs kind of has a niche indication, and I'll talk about these. As Dr. Ravandi mentioned, 
Um, the backbone of therapy for many, many years has been a drug called RSC or cytarabine, and it can be given at various different doses. For some patients, we give very high doses of the drug, and for other patients, relatively low doses based on whether we think the patients will benefit um, and can tolerate the really intensive therapy associated with higher-dose therapy. Um, and, and that's a major important question that we have in terms of what's the best therapy for patients. Should we use a really into- intensive approach or use a lower intensity approach um, that may control symptoms but has a lower likelihood of achieving uh, a remission? Um, and, and this is a difficult decision, but what's exciting is now there are newer drugs so we can make hopefully better responses for patients and better survival for patients with these new options. What's also exciting is that many of the newer drugs um, are already making their way into frontline therapy. So we're not waiting until patients have had standard therapy. Um, and then if they have a return of disease, they'll get a new drug. Um, they're, they're getting the new drugs early on in treatment, um, either through clinical trials or they're approved in that setting. So I want to talk about one new drug um, which is a novel formulation of uh, RSC, as I mentioned. And it actually incorporates two drugs in one, um, both donorubicin, which is another drug commonly combined with RSC, um, and RSC itself. Um, are, the two drugs are the common uh, uh, combination called seven and three, meaning seven days of IV therapy with RSC and three days of IV therapy with donorubicin um, through the new formulation can be all delivered as a single drug administered over three treatment days. Um, and that gives the, the, a very similar treatment effect in terms of treating the bone marrow and superior outcome when we've looked in a head-to-head trial. Um, so this drug was approved for therapy based on superior outcome of patients treated on a randomized frontline trial amongst patients over the age of 60 who had uh, AML that had arisen after prior myelodysplastic syndrome or prior chemotherapy for other cancers. And this has been a difficult population to treat historically, so to see improvements in survival in this group is really exciting. Um, And now the drug is going to be developed in other settings to see if it helps other patients, but certainly we know that it's an advance in this setting. Another drug that's been added to frontline therapy to expand on what Dr. Ragani mentioned is the use of a drug called mitostorin, which is a drug that targets a, a gene mutation that's seen commonly in AML that involves a gene called FLT3 or FLT3. And that gene mutation is relatively common in the disease occurring in about a third of patients, meaning a substantial number of patients can benefit from drugs targeting FLT3. Um, what we know from mitostorin's uh, development is that as a single agent, it, it did have anti-leukemic effects, but it was nowhere near as potent as traditional cytotoxic agents. However, when combined with those agents and, it, again, added to standard uh, frontline intensive therapy, the 7 and 3 I mentioned before, uh, the response rates seemed to be a bit higher, and the outcome looked really good. So a head, head-to-head study comparing the two approaches 7 and 3 plus mitostorin versus 7 and 3 alone was undertaken in a placebo-controlled trial that was reported a few years ago um, and showed that the addition of mitostorin improved survival in AML amongst patients with FLT3 mutations. Um, And this is a group that's been traditionally hard to treat because they have been associated with higher relapse rates and uh, worse survival. Um, So to see an advance in this group is really exciting. What's also exciting is that there are many other drugs targeting FLT3 that I'll talk about in a minute. Two other drugs that have been developed uh, and are approved for therapy for AML include a drug called gemtuzumab ozigamycin, which doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, so I'll just call it by its trade name uh, Mylotarg, which is an an antibody-based therapy that delivers a cytotoxic agent 
inside the cells of uh, leukemia cells. And by doing so, it basically cloaks the high doses of, of cytotoxic agent so that it doesn't cause as many side effects as we might see using this drug without the antibody to deliver that drug specifically to the leukemia cells. Um, and about 90% of patients will have uh, the target of that drug, which allows them to be treated with mylotarg. Um, and, and there are a substantial number of patients that can see better results with this. Um, so this has both been incorporated into frontline therapy, added to 7 and 3, and can be used as a single agent as a low-intensity therapy, um, either for patients who aren't ideal candidates for intensive therapy or who've relapsed after prior treatment with intensive or lower-intensity agents. And lastly, I want to talk about a drug called anacitinib, uh, which goes by the brand name IDFA, which is a drug that targets a different mutation in AML called IDH. Um, specifically, it uh, targets the IDH2 mutation, which occurs in about 10% of patients, um, and is a really exciting drug because it's an oral agent that, as a single agent, can uh, lead to transfusion independence and bone marrow remissions in a substantial proportion of patients with IDH2 mutations. And interestingly, the response rates to this were not only high, but quite durable amongst patients with that mutation, making it a very attractive uh, alternative to standard chemotherapy, either as frontline therapy if patients are not ideal candidates for uh, intensive approaches or for relapse of patients who have IDH2 mutation. And there are other drugs that target IDH mutations, another mutation called IDH1, for which there are uh, additional agents in development that are not yet approved. So while there were four drugs approved in just one year, we expect there actually may be several more drugs approved either this year or very soon in 2019. Uh, amongst these drugs that stand out are drugs targeting FLT3 that are even more potent than mitostorin and as single agents have comparable or perhaps even better responses to uh, as compared to chemotherapy. Um, some of these drugs include the drug quizartinib, which has already been shown to be um, better than standard chemotherapy to treat relapsed AML with FLT3 mutations. Um, and gilteritinib, which is another drug that's very similar to quizartinib, but actually has activity against a wider range of FLT3 mutations than quizartinib. There are other IDH inhibitors, including a drug called ibocytinib, which looks very promising for patients who have IDH1 mutation and uh, effectively can treat those patients uh, in the absence of other chemotherapy drugs. Again, uh, has been thus far tested in patients who have IDH1 mutation and relapsed or refractory AML. Um, and it, again, has led to substantial response rates and good survival in that setting. Um, there are many other drugs that are in development, um, both as intensive agents, but also in some very interesting low-intensity agents, including looking at a drug that's approved for a different kind of leukemia called CLL, um, but also has activity in AML. And this is the drug Venetoclax, which is a drug that directly activates a, a cell death mechanism in leukemia cells that protects these cells from uh, effects of chemotherapy, but when treated with venetoclax, can unravel this and lead to rather remarkable response rates, particularly in combination with low-intensity chemotherapy. And this has been really a very exciting treatment because it's allowed uh, patients who were considered to be um, less than ideal candidates for intensive approaches, nonetheless, to have very similar response rates and really promising look and survival from frontline therapy. So that drug is moving its way through uh, clinical development now. Um, another uh, exciting area in the field is activation of the immune system to target leukemia. And there are many different ways to do this, either by using antibodies that can uh, activate an immune response or using uh, uh, what are called chimeric antigen 
receptor T cells. Um, and uh, lastly, there are ways to deliver drugs through antibodies, as I've sort of alluded to before with Mylotarg. Uh, several of these drugs are uh, undergoing clinical development, and I won't go into the details in case Dr. Stein wants to cover those. But just to say there's a lot coming on the horizon. So lots of exciting new uh, developments in AML, four new drugs approved in the last year, and likely several new drugs in the coming year. So in the last few minutes that I have, I want to just talk a little bit about symptom management in AML. Um, and what I can say is, is just that patients' best tips for success with this disease is to, is to be informed and have good conversation with their caregivers. Um, it's useful to do that as a team, not just as an individual. So involve your caregiver in, in uh, talking to your providers, whether it's a physician, the nurse practitioner, or PA, fusion nurses, home fusion nurses, everybody involved in your care. Let them know what's most important for you and how best they can help you. It's important to uh, be attuned to issues that can complicate AML therapy, such as fatigue, such as nausea, such as risk of uh, bleeding or bruising, and important to stay on top of transfusion support because that can actually really make patients feel better and have fewer complications. Patients worry a lot about uh, lack of appetite um, or nausea, um, and ways to stay ahead of that is to uh, be sure that you're eating well when you're on therapy, that you're taking enough preventive agents for nausea, um, and to make sure you take really good care of your mouth in terms of trying to make sure if you're getting intensive therapies that can cause mucositis, that you're doing enough to coat the mouth with, coat with uh, wetting agents or other agents that can protect against uh, ulceration in the mouth. Um, artificial saliva is a very simple uh, measure. Rinsing the mouth with salt water is very good prevention. Um, and preventing infections with antivirals or antifungals has been an important part of keeping patients from many of the risks of, of chemotherapy. Lastly, uh, outside of uh, mucositis, uh, there can be pain associated with uh, swallowing problems from uh, mucositis, which is best treated with pain, directed pain medicines if it's in an area that uh, topical agents can't go and, and cover. So it's important to make sure your providers are aware of that issue if it's keeping you from eating. I do recommend that my patients maintain physical activity during therapy, and I love seeing when I'm rounding on patients in the hospital that they're up and out of bed and active in their therapy. And for my outpatients, that they're getting enough transfusion support to, be, uh, to do as many things as they want to do in their life before they were being treated uh, for leukemia. So it's important to stay ahead of transfusion needs and to be a squeaky wheel if the amount of energy you have isn't fixed by the hemoglobin level that you have. Um, lastly, recognize that some of the medicines that we give patients in support, whether they're nausea medicines or other supportive uh, uh, agents such as Benadryl with transfusions, can contribute to fatigue. So if there's ways to use non-sedating medications, that sometimes really makes a difference in terms of how people feel on a daily basis. Um, the non-sedating antihistamines often work really well in this setting. Um, I'm going to turn over uh, the mic to my colleague, uh, Dr. Stein, from uh, Sloan Kettering at this point, um, and I'll be happy to take questions later. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Stein. That was really, um, I'm sorry, Dr. Pearl, that was really outstanding and just very comprehensive. And um, a lot of good information. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Pearl. And our next speaker is Dr. Ethan Stein, and Dr. Stein um, is um, a hematologist-oncologist, a clinical trialist acute, with acute myeloid, myeloid leukemia, leukemia service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Stein is going to address clinical trial updates and he's also going to address BEAT AML Master Trial and how clinical trials increase treatment choices. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Stein. 
Thank you very much for that kind introduction, and uh, thank you for inviting me to speak on this uh, important teleconference. I think as you've heard from my colleagues, Dr. Ravandi and Dr. Pearl, there have really been um, really dramatic advances in the treatment of acute myeloid leukemia um, over the past uh, year to two years with these four new drugs that are approved, and like Dr. Pearl talked about, um, new drugs that we expect to be approved hopefully in the next year or two. And really the only way that we've been able to um, have these drugs approved and get these drugs approved has been by the participation of patients on clinical trials where we can use uh, these drugs that have um, such promise um, in patients um, to hopefully uh, allow those patients to benefit from these drugs. Um, in terms of updates to clinical trials uh, that are currently going on, um, you've heard how there's really been a revolution in um, understanding the biological basis of acute myeloid leukemia. And that has really led to clinical trials, I would say, in three main areas. The first area, like Dr. Pearl talked about, is in the area of targeted genetic abnormalities that occur in patients with acute myeloid leukemia and finding drugs that target those abnormalities. So, for example, mutations in genes like FLT3 and IDH, um, as was mentioned before. And what we're doing now is as we see that these drugs like IDH inhibitors, the IDH2 inhibitor, anacidinib, and the IDH1 inhibitor, ivocidinib, and all of the various FLT3 inhibitors that are either um, available uh, commercially or in clinical trials, what we're trying now, what we're doing now is combining those agents with standard of care agents. So drugs like quizartinib and giltaritinib, which are very potent second-generation FLT3 inhibitors, are being combined with standard-of-care therapy, such as induction chemotherapy. Um, some FLT3 inhibitors are now being uh, combined with the hypomethylating agents, such as 5-azocytidine in the treatment of older adults with newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia. And like Dr. Pearl talked about, the commercially available drug venetoclax is also being combined with the hypomethylating agent azocytidine. There are also other targets that we're going after um, with drugs uh, against mutations in acute myeloid leukemia. Um, there are clinical trials against a gene that can be mutated called KIT with a drug called desatinib, and there are mutations that occur um, in uh, splicing factors in patients with acute myeloid leukemia, and we now have splicing inhibitors that are being used uh, in clinical trials to address those patients who have those mutations. So one category is the molecular genetic alterations. The second category where we're having clinical trials that in early results are very uh, exciting are in the field of immunotherapy. So certainly, um, I think many of you will have heard about the, really the exciting activity of checkpoint inhibitors, drugs like nivolumab and pembrolizumab um, and atezolizumab um, in the treatment of patients with solid tumors such as lung cancer and kidney cancer and melanoma. And those drugs are now also being, um, being used in clinical trials in combination with other drugs such as hypomethylating agents for the treatment of acute myeloid leukemia. And we're very eagerly awaiting um, larger studies of those drugs to see what the outcomes will be. Um, there are also CAR T cells that are being designed for acute myeloid leukemia. Um, those uh, studies have recently gotten off the ground. Um, the early results have been, have been promising, and we're waiting for more data to come in. And finally, the antibody drug conjugates that Dr. Pearl mentioned before, 
Uh, he mentioned uh, Milotarg, which is an antibody drug conjugate against CD33, but there are other targets such as CD123 where we have antibody drug conjugates that can go after and attack cells um, that are, or myeloid leukemia cells that do express this CD123. I want to talk a little bit about um, the BEAT AML master trial because I think what the BEAT AML master trial does is it tries to incorporate a large group of novel agents into one clinical trial. And the way this trial works is as follows. It's a trial that's sponsored by um, the organization called the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And what happens is that if there is a patient over the age of 60 who has a new diagnosis of acute myeloid leukemia and they're interested in participating on the trial, um, a bone marrow biopsy is performed where uh, the bone marrow is sent for very rapid mutation analysis to see what mutations may be present uh, in the patient's bone marrow. And then depending on what mutations are present, there is a, um, a, an algorithm that has been developed, a potent algorithm that has been developed to identify which mutation is the one that is most important to target to help treat this patient's leukemia. And then there are various treatment arms of the trial that target specifically that mutation. So, for example, in a patient who, uh, who wants to go on the BEAT-AML trial, if they have a bone marrow biopsy and they're found to have an IDH2 mutation, they go on an arm of the study where they get uh, the IDH2 inhibitor enosidinib, and if the enosidinib um, is not working as a single agent, they can go on and get uh, another drug in addition to enosidinib called 5-azocytidine. Uh, another example of this is in patients who have their bone marrow biopsy, have signed up for the master BDAML trial, have their bone marrow biopsy, and are found to have a mutation in a gene called uh, P53, um, those patients get slotted into an arm of the trial that we think will be very effective against P53, and that's the combination of 10 days of a drug called decitabine with um, another drug, a novel drug called entosplatinib. So you can see that this BDAML master trial really is quite robust. It allows for patients to, to get the targeted therapy that is most appropriate for them. And finally, there are different arms of the trials that are opening up all of the time. So if a new drug has been identified as very promising, um, more likely than not, it will be incorporated as an arm on the BEAT-AML clinical trial. And the last thing I want to say just in the uh, minute that I have left is uh, to reiterate really how important it is uh, to participate in clinical trials. Um, as Dr. Ravandi mentioned at the beginning, we've made a lot of um, advances in the past couple of years in terms of the treatments of acute myeloid leukemia. Um, however, the outcomes really still aren't as good as we want them to be, and what we want is we want all patients to be cured. Um, we don't want anyone to be left behind. And in order to do that, we really um, encourage uh, patients to participate on these clinical trials so that uh, we can make the progress that we need to make to achieve that goal. Um, thanks again for your attention, and I'm also happy to take any questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Stein. That was also very excellent and um, very comprehensive, and I know there'll be questions for you as well, so thank you. And now we do have time for questions. I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care, and then um, Nicole will come back and explain to you how to queue up for questions. So please start to think about your questions, and then we'll be happy to take them. I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care as a resource for all of you. It's a large nonprofit organization, and the services are provided by trained oncology social workers. And the services we offer are practical and financial assistance and a copay assistance program, so in terms of people who might want to get some help with just the cost of the care of, of, of living with CML or other types of cancers, AML or other types of cancers, we definitely um, would, are available to help with those. 
um, and just some practical concerns and issues as well and resources. Um, we also provide counseling, and the counseling is provided both on the telephone and online. Um, and you can actually speak with one of our social workers about your concerns. It could be about how to talk with your children about your um, about um, AML, about um, how to talk to your boss, um, how to think about it yourself, how to deal with your family around these issues in terms of how you're feeling, um, and so um, how to cope with holidays. So all kinds of concerns that people have. Um, and then also we do have telephone and online support groups. We have over 120 online support groups, and we have a number of um, blood cancer-specific online support groups as well, both for people living with AML or with blood cancers, as well as people who are caregivers. Um, so that kind of population is for both people living with the disease themselves or their caregivers. And we also have a number of publications and resources and, of course, a website. So um, you will be getting all this information um, about how to, how to connect with us, um, both our website and our, our helpline number. But I just want you to know about those resources um, and that there is a great deal of attention paid to the emotional and social and practical needs that people have, or we use the term psychosocial concerns that people may have in coping with, uh, with, their, um, with AML or with any type of cancer. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask... Um, Nicole to explain to you how to queue up for questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, Nicole? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Again, if you have a question at this time, please press star one. We have a question from one of our online participants. Um, so that, um, so, and, and this question um, I'm going to give to Dr. Pearl. Um, what can I expect from a bone marrow biopsy, and how can I prepare? Great question. Um, so, a bone marrow biopsy is the best way that we have to assess for the presence of leukemia, and to and to characterize the leukemia in the way that Dr. Ravandi mentioned at the beginning of the program. Um, so it's a very important test because it can both make a diagnosis and it can also tell you whether your therapy has achieved the response you're looking for. Lastly, it can give you information about some of the molecular targets in terms of gene mutations that we might be interested in treating with specific drugs. So it's a really critical test in terms of both diagnosing and treating AML. So it is important that we do that from time to time, both to know that we're, we're, we've got the right diagnosis to start out with and that therapy is working for the right reason. Um, now, how is the, the test done? The test is done by, by uh, bringing the patient either to the clinic, and it's done on an outpatient basis, usually in the exam room. And sometimes it's done with, with uh, various levels of sedation, depending on the uh, uh, setup of the uh, uh, facility that's performing it. So some patients can have the procedure done with just topical anesthetic, and other patients need more sedation to allow them to be comfortable during the procedure. Um, the vast majority of patients that I do a bone marrow biopsy on, I don't use deep sedation on or conscious sedation on, and we use just topical agents, um, which is like, like lidocaine, uh, which is similar to the novocaine you might use at the dentist's office. Um, so there's really not much in the way of preparation that you need to do for the procedure. Um, you just come to clinic, and it can be done right there on the exam table. Um, it does require some um, some numbing agent, which causes stinging, um, and that can be a bit uncomfortable, and there is pressure during the procedure. 
There's also a brief period of time that during the marrow uh, uh, aspirate uh, removal that there's an odd sensation that you feel in the pelvis or down the leg. Um, it's, it's a bit uncomfortable, but it's quite brief, and most patients get through it without any lingering discomfort. Um, there's pressure that you do feel thereafter as a piece of the bone marrow is removed, and usually there aren't lingering uh, symptoms thereafter other than a bit of soreness for the next day or two. Um, it's a safe procedure that we do on outpatients all the time, and it's something that patients shouldn't fear in terms of uh, serious injury or serious complications, which are really quite rare from the procedure. Um, I hope that answers the question. Excellent. Thank you. And um, uh, Dr. Um, Stein, do you wish to add anything to that? Uh, no, I would, I would, I would uh, just second what Dr. Dr. Pearl said, that um, in, the, in the vast majority of cases, patients uh, tolerate the procedure um, quite well, and uh, they may have a little bit of residual soreness for a day or two, um, but overall it is uh, well tolerated. Now, certainly, if you know, if if the if if you are a person who uh, may be particularly anxious about the procedure, there are things that um, your doctor can can give you or do um, before the procedure to kind of relax you, so that um, you don't tense up and feel as anxious uh, before the procedure occurs. Excellent. Well, thank you. Thanks very much. And a question now for. Um for Dr. Stein, um, for one of our online participants, I have been in a clinical trial using SGI-110 uh, for two years, and as a 79-year-old, I wonder when this drug, to which I have responded very well, will be available on the market. Good question. That is a really good question. So um, one thing I would say is that it, it's certainly uh, very um, encouraging um, for someone to have been on a clinical trial for for that long, for, for a number of years, it sounds like um, the drug must be, must be helping out. Um, I don't have specific details of when the drug is going to be available. Um, I do know that there, I believe there was a phase three study that was either initiated or, or may even be close to completion. Um, and uh, if that uh, trial um, is positive, I'm hoping that we'll be able to see that drug on the market um, quite soon so that other people um, can benefit the way that it sounds like you're benefiting. Oh, excellent. Wow, thank you. And great question, great great response to it as well. Um, and Dr. Um, Pearl, do you want to add anything? or do? You know, um... Well, first off, congratulations on what sounds like a really good response. That's wonderful to hear. Um, secondly, I think the FDA has been doing a wonderful job of trying to accelerate the development of drugs for AML, trying to recognize new endpoints, meaning what the trial has to prove to show that the drug is safe and effective, and that's led to drugs being approved um, sooner than, than has ever been uh, available before. So they really do have a commitment on bringing drugs forward. And we're really excited about that, particularly as we're learning more about um, what, what the underpinnings of uh, AML are at a biologic level. And we're developing many drugs to target those features of it. Um, we're also trying to accelerate drugs that seem to be working faster and faster through the, the drug development process. So uh, it is a, indeed an exciting time in the field, and, and we hope that uh, the phase three study of, of SGI-110 or guadacitabine um, is positive because that would be a welcome addition to the uh, many drugs that we're using now. Thank and you. for uh, the listeners not familiar, that's a hypomethylating agent that Dr. Rabandi had mentioned early on. Excellent. Well, thank you. And um, so um, another question, and this question is for... Um, Dr. Pearl, um, 
I feel fatigue all the time. What can I do to have more energy? Which I know is a question that comes up on for all cancers and many hematologic yeah. cancers, but nevertheless, um, for people with um, AML, uh, the, the fatigue issue, you could just address so that there are, in a general way. I, I, I can think off the top of my head of, of three things that very commonly contribute to fatigue in this setting. The first is, is comes from the disease itself. AML itself can give you fatigue for no other reason than just it's present. Um, and during therapy, it, it depends on the type of therapy as to how quickly that resolves, whether it resolves entirely or just there's some days that are good and some days are bad, um, and what can be done to, to address it. Sometimes if, if it's a question of whether the therapy is working well or not, um, if the therapy is effective, we can work through that after a short period of time with fatigue. But sometimes if, if it's just cumulative and we need to change to a different agent or a different combination, if that's uh, a, an issue of how well the treatment is working for the disease. The second is the treatment itself um, as to side effects of chemotherapy, which many, many of them include fatigue, and that can be a common side effect from the treatments. So sometimes that could be a question of dose. If it's a drug that's given uh, for long periods of time, you can talk over with your doctor as to whether that's something where you could adjust the dose and it might impact the side effect profile. And lastly, it has to do with um, supportive care during treatment. So what your hemoglobin might be on a given day might impact how much energy you have. Um, and other medicines that we give, again, as supportive care can impact this. So some of the nausea medicines can cause sedation, and that can co contribute to feelings of fatigue. So there are things that we can do from a supportive care standpoint that do help, either by targeting a higher hemoglobin, avoiding medications that are sedating, um, looking at optimal dosing of medications, and lastly, how well those drugs are working to hopefully alleviate, sometimes not always eliminate, fatigue associated with therapy. Are there things you can do also? Um, one thing that I recommend for patients is to stay active if at all possible. Um, one of the hard things with treatment is to keep, you know, your get up and go um, and keep, keep uh, pushing on all through therapy. But it is something you can do in terms of, you know, having your family help out with you, getting an exercise routine if you're up for that, even if it's just a little bit of getting out of bed and walking around a little each day or trying to keep activities or hobbies. That can contribute a lot to your, to your general outlook, which helps a lot with energy level, too. And get a good night's sleep at night if that's an issue contributing. Well, thank you so much. Excellent. And, um, and Dr. Stein, do you wish to add anything? No, that was that was a fantastic overview. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Great. Excellent. Okay. And um, we have a question uh, for Dr. Stein from one of our participants. Should I get a second opinion before starting treatment? That's a good. That's a very good question. Um, I think when it comes to acute myeloid leukemia, um, sometimes time is of the essence. So um, I, in general, I'm, I'm always very supportive of getting uh, a second opinion. I think that uh, second opinions um, are important, number one, because sometimes doctors think slightly differently about things. And uh, number two, um, I think it, it provides some peace of mind for the, uh, for the patient that, that they are doing the right thing. Um, Having said that, when it comes to acute myeloid leukemia, there are certain subtypes of acute myeloid leukemia and certain um, presentations of patients when they show up with acute myeloid leukemia where, where it can be difficult to wait uh, for a week or two to get that second appointment. Um, uh, and in that case, that it's probably the best idea to um, rely on the judgment of um, the physician you saw the first time 
um, whether you have the time to, to go and, and seek um, a second opinion uh, from someone else. Excellent. Thank you. And um, Dr. Pearl, do you wish to add anything? I think I would echo uh, Dr. Stein's point that you have to make sure that it's a appropriate time and that it's really safe to take the time that it might take to seek a second opinion. I think it's really valuable in the setting where there might be, for example, clinical trial options that wouldn't otherwise be available to you. And so for that reason, when it's feasible, I do encourage it. But there sometimes can be logistic issues that just get in the way. Um, one thing I can say is that the, the, it's not uncommon that we'll see patients who've had prior therapy either as outpatient or as inpatient. And then once the disease is stabilized, I'll see them as a second opinion at that point just to make sure they're getting the right treatment. And that's totally appropriate. Um, Similarly, as their physician has recommended uh, allogeneic transplant, bone marrow transplantation, that's often a time when people ask around to say, you know, is that the best therapy for me and try to collect some opinions. And that's usually done at a time when the disease is stabilized and you have a little bit more time to figure these things out. But I think it is really important to recognize that the reason they call it acute leukemia is people can get sick fairly quickly. Um, and so in certain situations, really, time is of the essence, and we don't have a lot of time to be uh, kind of running around trying to gather opinions. Awesome. Thank you. And um, thank you. Um, and for Dr. Stein, there is a lot of interest in, from a number of uh, questions that we're getting online, um, certainly about the, um, the trials that are going on, the master trials and uh, the, the uh, BAML master trial. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that, because it seems to be a lot of really tremendous interest in this, um, in this from the online participants, particularly. Um, so, yeah. Um, so I can say a couple of things. Let me let me say a couple of logistical things, and then um, I could talk just about the trial a little bit more. So, um, you know, logistically, if if you are a patient who is interested in this trial, um, so it's only a trial for newly diagnosed patients with with AML, so that. Um, and you have to be over the age of 60. So if you have been treated um, before for your acute myeloid leukemia or uh, if you're 55, um, then at this point uh, you wouldn't be eligible for that trial. But for those people who have newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia, um, uh, you can go on the website of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, um, and there will be a list there of the centers that are uh, participating in this master clinical trial, the BDAML trial. These centers are located um, geographically um, throughout the country. On the, on, uh, uh, the last count, I think, it was on the East Coast and the Midwest um, and on the West Coast. So there are places all over the country where um, one can um, visit a doctor to uh, think about participating in that trial. And um, specifically when it comes to uh, the trial itself, I mean, the thing I like about the trial is you get this um, very detailed uh, molecular analysis of your bone marrow, and you get it back very rapidly. You get it back within seven days. And there is, um, there is a person who is looking at your bone marrow biopsy results um, to really identify, based on those bone marrow biopsy results, what is the best treatment arm of the trial to go in. So it's not random. It's not randomized. It's not a computer that's doing it. Um, it is a a um, physician with, with, with immense expertise in the treatment of acute myeloid leukemia um, and in the genetics of acute myeloid leukemia who is um, undertaking um, that and following the algorithm to undertake that decision-making uh, 
making process. Um, so that's what I would say about about this study. And I would in, just with one last thing. I, I would really encourage for people who are interested in the trial um, to get a list of the centers where um, the trial is being performed. And then, you know, if you know someone with newly diagnosed AML um, older than the age of 60, giving those centers a call and setting up an appointment um, to be uh, screened for that study. Excellent. That's it. And I have to. We all uh, really want to call out to the Chemo and Public Society for actually. Um, really um, making this possible, these trials. Um, um, and I think that um, their website will actually, when you when the program concludes, within a day you'll get an evaluation form. But it's not just an evaluation form. It also includes all the resources that we mentioned and other things that you might need to know about that will be helpful to you as well. And we'll include um, both a link to the trial, um, a link to the Leukemia Lymphoma Society if you also have as well, so you can get that information and really, and perhaps follow um, the trial as well, because it's uh, obviously very interesting, and I know many of you have tremendous interest in this, so I, I really appreciate um, these questions. And we do have a telephone question now, so, uh, Nicole. <laughs> yes. Our first question comes from the line of Ann W. Your line is open. Uh, yes, thank you. Um, so my question was regarding um, clinical trials for a patient who has had previous treatment that wasn't successful. Um, first off, are they eligible for other clinical trials? I know you said the BAML one, they would not be. Um, and if so, what's what's the downtime in between, um, you know, their last treatment and when they would be able to start a trial? Dr. Stent, do you want to start with that one? Yeah. So, so for someone who has um, uh, AML, where the treatment, the initial treatment either hasn't worked or they've relapsed after um, the the treatment uh, of their AML, there are a wide variety, many, many, many clinical trials that the patient will be uh, will will likely be eligible for. Um, those clinical trials will be open at a variety of places, um, certainly at major academic medical centers like MD Anderson and Sloan Kettering and um, University of Pennsylvania, where, where we're all from, and, and a variety um, of other places. Um, so I would encourage uh, the patient to go to a center that has a lot of experience with acute myeloid leukemia um, and um, does a lot of clinical trials because um, there will certainly be trials for that patient. If you go on the websites of any of these institutions, you could probably get a list of all the trials that are available. Um, in terms of the, the, what, what's known as the washout from the prior therapy, the washout from the prior treatments um, vary by clinical trial, but they are usually um, 14 days. So usually you have to be um, two weeks away from whatever your last treatment was. Um, which is almost never a problem um, for patients. So if they've gotten, let's say, um, induction chemotherapy um, and uh, it hasn't worked, um, then they, they are, you, know, you wouldn't know whether it's worked or not until day, around day 30, um, and then that won't be an issue because you'll be greater than 14 days away from, from that prior therapy. You know, different trials have slightly different criteria, but it tends to be around about two weeks. Excellent. Thank you. And um, Dr. Pearl, do you want to add to that? Um, just that there's a, a central repository of clinical trials that the National Cancer Institute has on their website, which can be useful if you happen to be looking geographically. Um, so if you go to www.clinicaltrials.com, 
clinicaltrials.gov, and clinicaltrials is all one word. Um, there you can look for geographic area under AML, um, and they'll, they'll literally put every single clinical trial that's there, and it will have some information about uh, eligibility. Um, lastly, for patients who, who have difficulty going more than a few weeks uh, between therapies because their disease makes them very symptomatic, most trials that are out there will allow you to be on hydroxyurea or some other uh, generally low-intensity chemotherapy just to hold things in check in between the last therapy. If there's an issue with the washout that it's, it's hard to go more than two weeks or four weeks or whatever is required um, without some intervening treatment, this just allows people to have more availability for trials, which I really think are the best option in this setting when the disease comes back after prior therapy or if it didn't respond to frontline therapy. There really are good options out there. Um, through trials, and I encourage you to look into them. Excellent. Well, well I actually I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been just remarkable, just amazing. Um, this has been an extra, extraordinary call, and I have to thank all of you who have asked the questions, both on the telephone and online, um, that really have been, always enhanced the call so much with your questions. I, mean, I hope you'll take the information that you learned today back to your training healthcare team. Of course, they know you best. Um, and actually... Um, and then and, and have them further, you know, you can feel more confident perhaps in asking your questions because of the information you gained today. And also perhaps also um, perhaps your questions will be slightly formed a little bit differently just because you have this additional information. Um, and I know that some of you um, still are in queue and have questions to ask, so I do want to um, let you know where you can get your questions answered. Now, we've talked about some of that today, but I, I kind of want to just repeat a little bit. You're going to get that in the evaluation as well, but I just want to give you all that information. Um, you are, again, um, we, we've mentioned the Latino Lymphoma Society a number of times. It's a wonderful resource for all of you um, because they do have such state-of-the-art information. They have a call center um, to address many of your concerns and questions. Um, and of course, the, their trial that, that's very fascinating to learn more about. So we will send you information about that. We often recommend that people also call the National Cancer Institute. Um, they have a toll-free number, 1-800-422-6237, and a website for those of you both in the U.S. and internationally who prefer a website, www.cancer.gov. And that website actually um, has a live chat feature where you can post your question and um, one of the information specialists will really research that for you. Um, and um, so your question could be about clinical trials, although there's another resource for that as well, that they kind of work together, um, or any question that you might have. Um, they're very helpful and very credible information. So we are going to give you the most credible places to go for information, which is really important. Um, and um, in addition, um, certainly for those of you who wish to access services from cancer care, um, from our, our oncology social worker staff here, um, you can simply call Cancer Care um, at 1-800-813-4673 um, or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Most importantly, as we're about to conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel alone. I know there are moments when you do feel alone, of course, um, but I want you to know that you're part of, there's so many organizations out there that can help you and that you don't have to uh, face this alone. And so, um, and of course, your healthcare team. Um, so that, um, and there are lots of resources that can be, many people find supportive. So again, I want to thank you all for being on the call today, um, and hopefully you've learned some new things. 
Um, and uh, and we will hope to see you on other programs that we're doing. We'll get information about all of our upcoming pro- programs as well. And I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.